Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Robbie Sove, a senior editor at Reason. His new book is Tech Panic, Why We Shouldn't Fear Facebook and the Future. Welcome back to the show, Robbie. Thank you for having me. Great to talk with you. So who is panicking about big tech? I'm putting that in scare quotes right now. We will have to constantly have that in here. But who, who is panicking? Basically everyone. There is just tremendous across-the-board fear about big tech and interest in doing something to combat the menace among again, pretty much everyone, Democrats, Republicans. I mean, everyone from Donald Trump to Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, every major political figure you can name virtually wants to wants to take steps to regulate social media more aggressively, um, if not break up these companies entirely. So it's a tremendous moment of bipartisan uh, panic, actually, and one that the more I look at the problems and the solutions, the zanier I think it is to be reacting in this way. Because while I agree that there are certain challenges posed by social media, there are some issues with the platforms, there are things I think they've not handled well, um, other problems are just wildly overstated, and then the solutions offered are terrible. Uh, it will, will not work, or will make things much, much worse, or make other problems worse. So that's, uh, that, in a nutshell, that's what my book attempts to do. It attempts to walk through exactly why that is, and I, I feel like I'm arguing against everyone on earth, not against my fellow libertarians, who are the only you know people with sane views on this subject, but everybody else. So I noticed Trevor asked about big tech, and you began talking about big tech, but then about halfway through the answer pivoted to talking about social media or switched terms to using social media. And so I wonder, does big tech in this case mean social media, which is, you know, a lot of the, if we, the companies that sit atop the NASDAQ, a lot of those are not social media companies, Apple and Google, but those sometimes seem to be ones that people are mad at as well. So is this a panic about technology companies that are large, or is it a panic specifically about social media platforms? The book is specifically about, uh, it's primarily about social media. It's primarily about Facebook, Twitter. Um, Google, you know, is a is a social media in some sense. The Google search function is not really exactly social media, but YouTube is owned by Google. YouTube is kind of social media a little bit. Um, you know, these definitions get a little tricky. You're right. The, the book is not like exhaustively about Amazon from like, you know, how Amazon, uh, oh, is Amazon hurting, you know, small businesses or something, that kind of thing. I, that, that is another component of the panic. It, it's, it's kind of touched on the book, but I, I'm mainly taking on the, cause I'm a, I'm a kind of free speech guy. I'm a, a speech and content person. So I'm mostly taking on the arguments that tech in its speech related function is either um, spreading misinformation or harming democracy or silencing people um, or radicalizing people or the, the so it's the those kinds of harms are the are the the or, or or are causing addiction among teenagers, which is actually right now probably the major bipartisan concern. Um, but that's the uh, that's the focus of the book. You start off by listing a bunch of people who are terrified of past technologies and introduced me to a Twitter account, uh, the Pessimists Archive, is that what it is? Yes, uh, it's that, fantastic. That, that, that tweets out, you know, scares about everything from bicycles to, you know, penny novels. Uh, so this is not new in terms of being afraid of, like, the, 
the older generation being afraid of the technologies that are being used by the younger generation. But it does also seem that when you get to social media, this is a very, very different world than going from, say, you know, newspapers to magazines to television. Uh, I, I mean, it is it is different. I don't know if it's very different, you know, going from going from having no written word to the written word or going from having, you know, people scribes compiling uh, information by hand to the printing press is a massive innovation going from only words on paper to people, you know, to, to television and radio is pretty dramatic. Is this more dramatic than that? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is in some ways and probably not in others. Um, it's also can be dramatic in ways that are primarily good. Uh, in, in, as we panic about, about tech, about social media, uh, we often, even if there are some problems, we often miss that the benefits I think are like tremendously better. I think it's like, it's broadly great <laughs> that it's easier to communicate with people all across the world instantly. I mean, if you go back, you don't have to go back that long. You only have to go back like to my high school years where I was having these same kinds of conversations, uh, social uh, experiences were in, you know, AOL instant messenger chat rooms, which were more limited and more constrained and, and less reliable or the tech was less reliable than Twitter is for me today or YouTube or, you know, I'm the, I'm now the host of a YouTube show. I can be watched by hundreds of thousands of, if not more people every day. And like, this is a technology, this is, I, I would have had to be on TV or something. I would, or, or even from just the writing core function, right? If I objected to something someone wrote in the newspaper, I would, what, write a letter to the editor? I would send them smoke signals. I don't even know how you would do it. Now I can instantly, instantly send them information, have some kind of uh, dialogue. And that's just in, in terms of the kind of professional class or, or what have you, the, the, the ability to just connect in a, in a leisurely social way with people all over the world is just, is, is great. It, it has downsides as well, but it is also great. And we, like, we forget that it's good, especially during the last horrible two years that we have endured where we were, the government literally forbid people to socialize, to gather, to do the most normally human things where humans crave socialization. Um, the government said, don't do that. And we are, and it was horrible. I thought it was horrible, but how much more horrible would it have been without, um, without Facebook and Twitter and Google and, uh, oh, and Snapchat and TikTok and everything else that, you know, is popular among, uh, platforms that are, uh, you know, you know I'm an, I'm an older person now, <laughs> I'm the same age to you. I do discuss these newer and, and, and younger platforms that, you know, to the extent I can understand them. But, uh, I, I think the advantages of being able to communicate in this way have become only more evident, which is why I'm, I'm kind of, it's kind of funny that the panic has not abated at all. In fact, it's, it's kind of sped up despite the fact that like, thank God we had social media for the last two years is, is, is my perspective. Maybe, maybe somebody disagrees, but I, that's my perspective. But this does seem to get at the, the core of, I guess there's, a, there's an asynchronous nature to the panic because this is the core of what sounds like more of the lefts or the progressives, the Democrats. Part of the panic is exactly what you're describing is a problem in in the idea that yes before you know we all could have zines or we could write letters to the editor or whatever but there were gatekeepers and 
and even if there weren't gatekeepers, there were economic limits that meant that like I could I could self-publish a book in the 80s, but it was never going to get the reach of a major publisher. Or I could record something on my camcorder and maybe get it on public access television, but it was never there it was structurally impossible for it to get the reach that it would get elsewhere. But now those those barriers no longer exist. Like the, you know, big media and the traditional publishers are still popular, but they don't have that structural advantage because theoretically my tweet or my YouTube video could reach just as many people as an NBC show does. And that does seem like, particularly from the left's perspective, a problem because it means that bad ideas, and we all have been on social media and we all have seen how many bad ideas, even in nonpartisan sense, just terrible ideas or crazy people circulate at a, at very high numbers on social media and that then anyone else can find it. And because of the nature of the medium, there's no – a tweet from NBC News looks the same as a tweet from some random person except for the profile picture. Um, and, and that this has led to a you – know, people can find weird information that is misleading or dangerous and – surround themselves with it. Um, but then interestingly, the right, their objection to at least social media is that they imagine social media is at the beck and call of the forces that want to restrict that stuff and want to limit their ability to send their ideas out into this this medium. So in that regard, it does seem like the very things that you just raised as benefits are in fact what half of our partisan electorate or their leaders think is actually the problem. They, certainly, they think that's the problem. They're wrong. Uh, I say good riddance to the gatekeepers. Um, you know, you you say that you can find misinformation, you know, very recklessly wrong, bad information uh, on social media, be, you know, because there isn't that same amount of gatekeeping. And you're absolutely right. But you know what? You can find bad information on the front page of the New York Times. Uh, the, I mean, the decision to invade Iraq was sort of produced by right elite media, newspapers, television, etc. There's a there's a kind of um, small-minded uh, liberal consensus that is manufactured and produced by traditional media that is right about some things. I don't, I'm, you know, I'm not a crazy person. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it's also wrong about a lot of things. And I, and I, I don't think social media, there, there are fewer guardrails. So maybe there's more even crazier stuff, but there's also like good, it's good alternative perspectives that are, are healthy and are correcting a lot of the, the, the sort of um, toxically, unthinkingly, one-dimensional uh, sort of narrative you get uh, from the mainstream, uh, and also you you know you you have you know you have misinformation on television and on radio and on all sorts of space. There was never this. Free it, it's funny when you know when like I guess the left, the liberals, Democrats, progressives, whoever you know, they want to say that Facebook or something is the reason Donald Trump got elected. And I'm like, have you listened to Fox News? Have you listened to talk radio? Or, or even or the other side, the these media, uh, these these media are twenty four seven commercials, like propaganda for or against a certain political cause. 
at least on like on social media, you do get a range, you get a wild range of 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 views. Um, and you know, as as someone whose views are are all are in some ways alternative, in many ways alternative to what you know you find in either political tradition. I think probably those of us who have contrarian or alternative ideas are much better served by this this media ecosystem where a lot of different uh, uh, um, a lot of different ideologies, a lot of different you know alternative media organizations have been able to flourish. So I, I see it as as positive. Now you're right; there there are completely opposite concerns here from right and left. Left says, and not left is progressives say, yes, social media allows way too much stuff and must clamp down more on speech we don't like. And conservatives say, social media clamps down way too much on speech we don't like, and they should do less of that. Uh, it, it's it, it's kind of hilarious because you you see Zuckerberg and Dorsey and all the rest at these at these show trials before before Congress. And they're just getting completely opposite demands. So even if they wanted to do what the government wants, the like various members of the government want completely contradictory things. So there, there is no way for them to really handle this. And 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 frankly, that reflects in how, how they've approached it because there are many moderation decisions that social media companies have made that I think are bad, and I criticize them all the time. I don't think it follows from that whatsoever that like the government needs to be more involved in setting these policies or that or that, you know, punishing these companies would benefit uh, conservatives who are saying that, yeah, we need to you know smash big tech, hurt, hurt Facebook, hurt Mark Zuckerberg, punish them for taking down speech we don't like. It makes absolutely no sense because they're the right. I, I, again, alternative perspectives, perspectives outside that narrow liberal orthodoxy you get from the New York Times benefits from the existence of social media has clearly benefited. So just like hurting these companies because they made you mad would be like the most self-defeating strategy of all time. I, I, I understand better. So in summary, I understand better why progressives want to regulate social media. I think they're wrong and I think they're overstating a lot of the problems and I'm, they're missing a lot of the benefits. I don't actually even understand and I have tried to understand. I think it's like a pure rage or like an unthinking rage why some many Republicans are interested in writing social media, uh, regulating social media. It's it's revenge, but it, it is tactically self-defeating. How much do you think the, as you described the, the legacy media, what Aaron had talked about with the gatekeepers, uh, it seems that there might be some self-interest there if you do write for the New York Times and you, you know, pin some sort of op-ed that says, there's a huge problem with all these people online saying things that aren't true and they're not being vetted by legacy media and they're taking eyes, you know, away from what we do. And so do you think there's a lot of self-interest there for the the established media who say we should be the ones who influence the course of human history, not QAnon, which I mean, I mean, I, I don't want QAnon to influence the course of human history either, but not, you know, fringe elements uh, that say things that are not vetted by our establishment. No, that's exactly it. In fact, I've described uh, the the book. I, I say that the mainstream media, in particular, the New York Times, is the villain of the book. And because then, when you look back through, as you were saying, the the pessimist archive, which I I gives many examples of in the book, there are just countless examples throughout history of the New York Times, in particular. Yes, trying to foster some moral panic about whatever the emerging rival uh, communicative technology is. Everything from radio 
to uh, to the to the phonograph. Any way of communicating and TV, of course, video games. You know, I mean, these are things that obviously other traditional media companies fostered panic about as well. But yes, it is self-interested, and 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 they're not transparent about how it's self-interested. Many, uh, I mean, newspapers in particular have, like, like the industry has crashed uh, in many ways. Uh, the New York Times still doing okay, still doing quite well. But other places have crashed because these are, com- you know, competing ways of getting information. Um, they, they, and also they're doing the, they're doing the same thing. You know, this idea that that uh, that uh, you know algorithms are you know manipulating you or that kind of thing. Well, look, the, all news organizations can see the analytics now, and they know how to specifically craft articles or frame articles or what subjects to pick or how to headline them or what picture to all of that stuff to keep your eyeballs in their direction. And they're all doing that. And like, so yes, Facebook is doing that. Twitter is doing that. YouTube is doing that. But so are all traditional media companies. So is television. It's just, it's, it's, it, if, if you think it's nefarious, it's not just nefarious or something when social media does. It's what all companies are trying to do. Um, and it, so it's, it's a, it's an industry uh, uh, battle that is not like being acknowledged as such. And there, this was particularly evident. The New York Times was so freaked out about Clubhouse, which was this, uh, you know, the, the, it, it's kind of gone downhill. It was really, yeah, just about 20 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not got a, a lot of juice left in it, but we, you'd be talking, it was a platform for, for voice chat without video, uh, that was really popular during the pandemic. And the, the New York Times had all had this article like, oh no, but how can you fact check it if there's no because it's just audio. It's not does it's not producing some transcript. So people will be hearing things that could be false. Oh no. It's just this utter like panic that people would be consuming information without the the traditional news media being able to filter that for you. And I don't think that's a very like healthy way to approach human, like human conversations happen without the New York Times permission and have for, you know, thousands of years. Um, So it's just kind of odd. Part of what's motivating this seems to be almost like a myopia of influence in, in that. So Trevor has talked in the past about campaign finance regulation. And one of the conceits of campaign finance regulation is that essentially the voters are these non-critical blank slates who will do whatever the the most frequently seen campaign ads say. And so therefore we need to regulate campaign ads and other political speech because they're nefariously influencing the voters. And traditional media and this narrative of like Trump would not have been elected if it weren't for social media and so on has this view that the the American public are these mindless blank slates who will do whatever the media they're consuming tells them to. And so if we're in charge, they'll do what we, the New York Times, tell them to. But now that we're not in charge or that they can get it from elsewhere, uh, politicians tend to have a similar kind of view. And, and you know, like we have data on, you know, Trump wasn't necessarily elected by social media because he got really high votes in places with low social media usage to begin with and so on. Uh, so I guess how much of this is like people who you tend to, there's always a tendency to think whatever it is that you're doing is really important. You know, I've, I've sometimes laughed at like pol- the pol- DC policy world. Every single person is like, like when the, we had the financial crisis, it was like every policy area had a paper that came out that was like, my policy area was the most important thing in influencing this financial crisis. 
you know, um, and so how much of this is just people really wanting to think that they are incredibly influential uh, when they're not. And so what social media is doing is less influencing people in new ways, but more just exposing the pluralism of influence and the relative lack of concentrated influence. Yeah, there is no kind of more indicative uh, example of this than uh, I, I. So in a middle chapter of my book, I really take aim at the idea of, you know, it, it, that it's spreading addiction and anxiety and and uh, oh, and right, they're going to convince you to buy things and, you know, scary. They have it's mind control, a mindset that is most popular, that is most believed by tech people, right? By ex-employees of tech companies, by people who left Google and uh, and Facebook in, in panic. Yeah, they, and they're coming to the public uh, with the alarm of like Manhattan Project scientists talking about this horrible, you know, global extinction event weapon that they, the most brilliant people who ever existed in their brilliance created. And now, now they are warning you, you must listen to them. But like the thing they're describing is the like button. <laughs> not, not a bomb, the like button. And you know, you're listening to these people talk, and I, I get the idea, and I think, okay, I get that you're pretty addicted to tech and to social media because you're a weirdo who like worked on this for years, but most people are not weird like you. Most people are consuming these things basically in a healthy way. Maybe they, we could all stand to put our phones away a little bit less, just like I could have stood to play a few hours, fewer of video games when I was a kid and even still today, to be completely honest, but... Like, it's not out of the realm of my brain to deal with this. Um, they they act as if, you know, the fact that Facebook knows, ex you know, what prod products you buy can recommend things really, and then it just, and then it gets you, and then you have no choice. It's just wrong. It actually goes back to uh, my my colleague at Reason, Nick Gillespie, uh, told me about this book, uh, The Hidden Persuaders by Vance Packard. It's a, like a Mad Men era book about how how people in the advertising industry had, you know, mastered how to how to hack the human brain and there'd be subliminal advertising and you would have no choice over what you're buying or consuming it anymore. Now, we all we know today that that was in fact, even at the time, people in the advertising industry knew that that was totally BS, that there was no truth to that whatsoever, no validity um, you can influence human behavior on the margins, but like the idea that you just have total mastery, this hacking of the human brain thing does not, we have not cracked it yet. We're, we're not there. Subliminal advertising is banned in some countries. It doesn't even exist. It's not a thing. <laughs> like it did, it, no one was doing it. No one was trying it because it's not real. And there's a, there are, this is more real than that, but it's, it's not the level of, in, in some ways it's better. Isn't it better? that I see advertisements on Facebook that kind of reflect my interests. Like I, you see on, on TV, I see advertisements for like products completely irrelevant because it's not, it's, it, you know, they don't have some, I mean, on some streaming services, now they do have things that are relevant to you, but it's like, you know, for years it's been cars and I was not going to buy a car. I am now going to buy a car, but not because I saw the car commercial, the circumstances of my life have changed. But for years, these ads have been irrelevant to me. On Facebook, I might see an ad for like a sweater or a board game or something that, you know, I might buy. So like, it's better. It's not nefarious. It's only nefarious if you think like the entire process of capitalism is nefarious, which is, I guess, something some people on the left think, but I don't think that. Yeah, after off of Aaron's point, because that was a realization I had about campaign finance 
in many ways it's discussed that people are automata who are beholden to the ads you put in front of their faces. And it was the same realization I had, say, when I was, you know, in high school and you had some punk rock dude saying, well, you can listen to what the corporate you know, record labels want you to listen to that they're just making people like, you know, Britney Spears or Lady Gaga, or or you can be authentic and listen to real music. And like, they're both coming from the same place, which is this inauthenticity of choice and disrespect of other people that, you know, they are addicted to social media, but I'm not addicted to social media. They get radicalized by social media, but I don't get radicalized by social media. Nevertheless, though, um, and you talk about in the book, I saw the social dilemma. Uh, It did seem pretty damning in terms of the concerted effort. And as you said, it's more real than the perpetual myth of subliminal advertising, right? Which is, you know, words flashing, you know, instantaneously behind the screen or something like that. This doesn't work. No one's ever figured this out. But there are people at these companies spending a lot of time and these companies are spending a lot of money to try and make sure that you look at your phone for as long as possible. So it's a little different. Yeah. And some people struggle with it. Some people look at their phone too much, but you know, there are some people who they go to the casino and they would gamble away their life savings. I don't do that. I can go to the casino and gamble like a very reasonable amount. Um, most people are like that. Some people are addicts and they should not engage. They should not drink alcohol. They should not do drugs. They should not gamble, et cetera, et cetera. We don't make policy, or we shouldn't make policy. As a libertarian, I believe that we should not make policy at the level of the most addicted or suffering uh, or, or, or incapable, or the person whose choices maybe should be, ra- who might rashly restrict their choices. We don't make policy. We don't think policy should, de- should devolve at that level. I think something you know, quite similar for, for, for smartphones and social media. Right now we're talking about, you know, internal research came out from Facebook exposed by this whistleblower about how some young women were having a negative experience on Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, um, have, having to do with kind of body image uh, issues, uh, that sort of thing. So it was like you know, two, I don't I think it was two in five, something like that. Uh, women were self-reporting, uh, young, young teenage girls, negative feelings, correlated with their, I mean, as best they could tell, right? This is self-describing their mindset in a survey. And look, that's something to be aware of. And Facebook might be well-advised to think about this or we can think about, but again, even if you think this is a problem for the government to solve, like what is the solution? What are they, a lot of the, like limiting their, their ability to use these platforms are going to fall into, I think, pretty immediate First Amendment problems, right? We had it is it is sort of similar to the violent video game thing where like the supreme court says pretty decisively that this is this is speech in a in a in a in a protected way that you can't you know just because there are some potential or theoretical harms to young people you the state can't like step in here and also i the harms are pretty theoretical still like survey a bunch of young not even young women just young people in general ask them does school make you feel negative? I bet like 90% of them would say yes, because being a teenager is hard and you're emotional and it's difficult. And I'm not, I'm not saying that flippantly. It's, it's legitimately difficult. Um, but there's also, I mean, there's evidence that, right, social media makes it better for a lot of kids. You can find, it's easier for them to sort themselves into, you know, outside the like oppression and sometimes literal physical intimidation of high school, you can find communities of like-minded and supportive people on social media. You can also find dangerous and unhealthy communities. 
but there's, you know, it, it's more likely you find the other thing. It's more often occurring that it, it's some benefit to you. So, you know, if you really want to turn kids into like angry, scared, bitter loners, take away their phones entirely. Like that's what that's going to do. So there, there's some happy middle ground. And I haven't been convinced yet that the government needs to be the one to set that. I, I am totally in support of parents taking somewhat more control over what their their teenagers are doing, how much time they're spending on, on social media, just as just as my mother limited my video game playing as a kid. I, I understand why it's a little bit harder to do that because it's a smaller device. You can walk, you can hide it under your pillow. But I mean, kids could have hid and did hide comic books under their pillow that kept them up all night. Then they you don't get enough sleep and you go to school and you're tired and you're depressive. Like this is, it's kind of like that. It's within the realm of we can confront it, I think. I, I've not been persuaded that it's something that, that is, it has gone so wrong it is so necessary for the government to do it or to, to fix it uh, and, and also that there would be a, a solution that overcomes rather obvious First Amendment issues. There's also, I think, just an angle of every generation thinks they invented everything. Um, my, my seventh grade daughter is, I believe, of the opinion that her and her friends came up with the idea of acid washed jeans with tit rips in the knees. Uh, but, you know, like, I think there is part of that is like, oh, my God you know, teenage girls are reporting body image issues, which has not happened. It didn't happen before social media, obviously, you know, like that was never a problem until right. Facebook. Came right. You're being facetious. Yes. I'm being facetious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like th I think there's that, but I wanted to turn because we have been talking largely about, we talked about how there was this asymmetry in the nature of the panic from the left and the right about social media um, or, or, you know, what their grievances were. And I think we've been talking primarily about what the left is upset about. So I wanted to turn to the right is upset about. And it does seem like so, you know, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube um, and and then or Facebook, Twitter and Google and then the various platforms that each of them runs control a incredibly large overall portion of online discourse. And and you can set up you can set up alternatives, but they don't seem to do very well in part because it seems like whenever conservatives try to set one up, they just can't get competent tech people to work for them. And so they immediately get hacked or crash or whatever. But it is the case that if you get kicked off of, if one of those three companies decides to deplatform you, you've lost the bulk of your potential audience. And conservatives do seem, they do seem to believe that even if these companies say it's not the case, they do ban more it feels like they ban more conservative accounts than progressive accounts. Um, we hear more about conservative politicians being having their accounts suspended than progressive politicians. Is there any truth to that? Is it is it the case that Facebook and Twitter and so on have it in more for conservatives than they do for progressives? It's a difficult question to answer succinctly i certainly the people who staff these companies uh skew uber progressive and their political biases are toward the left 1000 percent. there's no question there and that's true uh, again of the employees even versus their own management uh mark zuckerberg and jack dorsey um unfortunately jack dorsey is no longer going to be in charge in tw of twitter and i'm quite worried about that those two were much more committed to 
free speech principles to having a diversity of ideas to not being too heavy handed about censoring ideas they disagree with or muzzling ideas they disagree with. Those two are far more committed to it than everyone else who works at the company. Um, so, so it is a concern. And, and yes, you have, you have plenty of examples. There are examples on both sides, but you have, and then also some of it is just the user base leans to the left or at least the user base that complains about other content leans to the left. I know left, lefty people are snitches. I don't know. There's more report. There's more complaining about content being done. And that's the most important thing to understand, right? Because this isn't filtered up front. Everybody posts whatever they want pretty much on social media. And then later it might get flagged by an algorithm or by a user might report it if they don't like it. And then maybe the platform takes action. So if more people more progressives are reporting, there will be more action taken against conservative speech. Um, if, and then people go, well, this is not fair. Why is, you know, why is th- thing A still on the platform, but not thing B, even though you know, they, they're roughly equivalent, in my opinion? Well, nobody complained about A yet. It, like, it's just, it's, it's not, it will never look perfectly equal because it's not, it's not moderated that way. But I, so there are examples of, Significant examples like the Hunter Biden, you know, laptop story is a very good example of so Facebook and Twitter took action against this very this somewhat damaging story in the New York Post about uh, Hunter Biden um, with, you know, kind of semi dubious sourcing, although it's turned out the sourcing, as far as we know, was completely accurate. And then the, the, the kind of central point of the story, if not its broader implications, are basically like no one contends now are false, but immediately was taken off Twitter such that you could not tweet the link to the story. And Facebook didn't, Facebook turned it down so that you'd be less likely to encounter the story in your newsfeed. And then, then they apologized for doing that because they realized that was wrong action. So like that kind of thing was bad. Like there's no way around it. It was bad. But my sort of broader response to the right would be the right is still benefiting and getting more out of social media than anyone else right now. So like even the Hunter Biden laptop story, so th- let's say there's no social media. Okay, so then no one reads the Hunter Biden laptop story. We had social media, they took really clumsy action against it, and then which produced like a hundred articles on other media sites and everybody sharing and talking about how this story was being suppressed from you. When you sometimes when you suppress something, you make people more interested in reading it. it it's like Streisand effect territory. So I am 100% convinced that the bad actions Facebook and Twitter took against this story ended up amplifying its reach or amplifying people's awareness of it. So while it was bad, it doesn't call out for a solution, again, because this is like still conservatives are getting more. Like Check Facebook on, at any given day. The top 10 articles, you will see articles from Dan Bongino, Fox News, The Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro, Breitbart, The Daily Caller, uh, Tucker Carlson, um, not, they're not all 10 every day, but there's the, yesterday I checked, they were, so there was some of the, half of those people were in there. So it's, it's, so again, I get why progressives want to destroy these countries. They are, they are platforms that are not controlled by the mainstream media. Um, and conservative views are being shared and they, and, and Elizabeth Warren doesn't like that. Joe Biden doesn't like that. Um, but I, conservatives should not give into that impulse. It's very, it, yes, social media does take action against conservatives. Some of those actions I think are wrong. I have criticized them. I think the right thing to do is to criticize them. 
but it does not call out for regulatory solution because any regulatory solution will end up just either crippling or either have no effect, so who cares, or it'll end up crippling these platforms. Some of the specific regulatory actions sought by Republicans and Democrats, for instance, you know, changing Section 230 being the main one, this is the liability shield for social media, that, that if you post something on social media and it's defamatory, you can be sued, but the social media company cannot be sued because of Section 230. And everybody describes this as some kind of unfair advantage enjoyed by tech companies. I'm not even interested in arguing whether it's an unfair advantage, but the, like the, the implication of, the, of, of it it's what like creates the internet as we know it. It's what allows people to post without them like having to review the post ahead of time. That is obviously benefiting non-liberals right now. So why we would get rid of it? If, you know, we as libertarians, conservative, even like far leftists, right? Anyone outside of the middle liberal kind of consensus, we benefit from this. So we don't want to change it. Do you have a theory about why some libertarians who you'd think might know better or would usually know better in terms of calling for regulation, uh, have started calling for regulation saying, oh, we should make these companies regulate, moderate in a politically neutral way. Uh, it's sort of, it's been a little bit befuddling to me. I, I, I think that for some people, they are actively afraid that conservative views would be entirely censored if left to the druthers of these tech companies and then they could they could work to effectively drown out counter viewpoints um so they're they're afraid of that but like beyond that like the the regulations if we put them in place would a destroy could destroy the internet and b would greatly benefit the big tech companies and possibly entrench them that right facebook supports the regulation facebook has come out and supported this regulation knowing that it will hurt Twitter more, you know, Twitter being Facebook's main competitor in this specific as, uh, in the, in this specific function that Facebook performs as a social media site. Its competitor is Twitter. Twitter is smaller. Twitter employs fewer content moderators. So if you force the companies to do more content moderation because you raise their liability for each individual post, you would advantage Facebook over Twitter the same way that if you raise the minimum wage, you end up ad, you know, helping Walmart in some weird warped way because you hurt Walmart's competitors more, you put them out of business, and then Walmart comes out ahead. It's very similar to that dynamic. I don't know, I, I, I mean, I've, I've tried to argue with them. I've tried to challenge you know, people who are sort of, you know, the libertarian right or people kind of connected to us who are like, yeah, smash big tech because it doesn't make sense to me. And I, I think maybe they don't mean it or maybe they're just like so angry and vengeful about the couple things that social media has done that seems wrong. I mean, there, there's something kind of performative about it, right? When you're railing against the big tech monopolies and you're doing so on Twitter, like how, and, you're, and your whole view is that they are just crushing every dissent. Wouldn't they be wouldn't they be, if they were really interested in that, wouldn't they be crushing your, your criticism of them, which they, they almost never do? Um, and, and again, I don't want to sound like a shill for these companies or something. Like, I think they do a lot of, they think they do some bad things. But when, when, when I hear from, you know, my friends and allies that, you know, we're in this moment of, of silencing, this great silencing is occurring. Like, what planet are you living on? The, the conversation is is more unfiltered and freewheeling and, and broader and wider and deeper and in every direction than it has ever been in my lifetime in human history. It is easier 
to share and to to share ideas and to reach other people and, and to do so without the permission of the authorities or the government or really even the companies themselves or elite people in general, this this vast silencing is not even if they're if they're trying to do it, they're doing a really bad job because alternate perspectives are getting out. And I'm glad about that. I think that's a healthy thing. I think that's a good dynamic. I'm in favor of that. That's what's happening. Maybe we the situation could be even further improved. I'll, I'll you know I'll, I'll concede for the sake of you know what if maybe there's some alternative regulatory regime that makes it even better. But I'd be I'd have to be really persuaded that it could be better to, if, if we're going to make these tweaks because it could very well be worse. And the immediate implication of raising the liability threshold for social media seems to me like it would make it worse. Like what if if Twitter could be sued? Just for instance, if Twitter can be sued for everything that everybody posts on Twitter, won't they immediately, like the first thing they would think to do would be to go to a verified only system where you can only post on Twitter if you have a blue check mark? If, if you're only, you know, a kind of respectable media person, um, you know, who, who doesn't, who, who carefully writes allegedly and purportedly in their tweets so they're not, you know, inviting that kind of, like a journalist. <laughs> so, so if your perspective is, you know, you don't, and, and that's who the company like agrees with, but you're going to, you're going to tip the scales. So we only hear from more of those people. Like, how is that again? How does that benefit Josh Hawley? How does that benefit Ted Cruz? How does that benefit Donald Trump, who was on the platform for almost his entire presidency, occasionally tweeting, cr- tweeting crazy things? And Twitter was sued by left wing activists who said you have to take down Donald Trump's tweets because they are harmful and they're dangerous. And Twitter cited Section 230 and said, no, we don't. We are not liable for these. And the court agreed. And so they left up his tweets like that. that Donald Trump is, is tweeting about how we need to get rid of Section 230. Yet it's the thing that allowed his often unhinged social media presence to exist for most of his presidency until he finally crossed a line that 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 even they thought was you know, was was too far and, and had 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 been crossed and they had to do something, which I a decision I, I think it's fine to have a variety of opinions about, but I, I, I do not think was at all a crazy decision on their part. So maybe not regulation. And so where we are setting the rules by which all platforms must decide what content can appear on their platforms. But maybe concentration is the issue then that we should we should hook on to. And this you get a lot of people, particularly on the left, but uh, but the right does this too. Josh Hawley does this of breaking up these companies. And I don't know off the top of my head, you know, how much of online, call it social media speech appears on the, you know, the two biggest platforms or the the various sub platforms they control. But my guess is it's a significant portion of it, if not a majority of it. And if we, you know, if, as libertarians, if we said we would be like if if the media, the newspaper landscape was or the, the print commentary landscape was there are two or three major publications through which all political commentary and journalism goes, we'd say, you know, that seems like in a, in a functioning market, you would have lots and lots of competitors and it would be thriving and it would be more diverse and you would have more of a marketplace of ideas and that would be good. Um, and and so maybe the issue is we shouldn't have a handful of companies controlling all of this, but we should put in place a anti-monopolistic regulatory regime that instead says, 
you can't have that much of in the market. There's got to be 25 competing Twitters and 100 competing Facebooks where people can talk and then you can find the one that matches your niche and you can find the one where the corporate structure is most amenable to your ideological perspective or at least the least hostile to it. Is that a better way to approach it or should we just not even be concerned about that degree of concentration? I don't really I don't really see how that gets around a lot of the problems people are discussing. Right. So if your issue with social media with big tech is that it's just too big and it's just wrong for so much capital to be concentrated in just, you know, one or two companies, you know, there's more than one or two of them. Um, and, 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 you know, you, you think that's like a threat to democracy or that's really bad. I, 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 I ideologically disagree, but probably on some level, I'm, we're just like not, we're going to be talking past each other. If that's your ideology, I guess I'm not sure what to say to you. I would try to, you know, I've tried to raise practical uh, issues with, with that kind of, I guess, reliance on government to solve that problem. Um, also, we just, so we do have to, first of all, concede that existing antitrust law, the existing theory of monopoly does not at all match. It is not sufficient to handle the problems we're talking about. The theory of monopoly, and I'm sure I don't need to tell you guys this, you know it, you know, is harm to the consumer, is the idea that, you know, standard oil, they have all the oil, there's no one who can compete with them, they raise, they raise the price, and they hurt you, the consumer. That is not, even if we're agreeing that, you know, Google is a monopoly or Facebook is a monopoly, they're clearly not a monopoly in that capacity because they're not charging you for their product. They're not going to raise the, what, if Facebook raises the price, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt, we would just not use Facebook. It, it's not, they're not cornering some good. Um, the, the, the way in which they're operating like a monopoly, if they are doing that, is really harming competitors or squeezing out competitors immediately, you know, crushing competitors in the cradle, that kind of thing, um, or putting the pillow over them, whatever you do to kill people in the cradle. This went in a really dark direction. You get what I mean. Um, they, they are doing that, but that's not illegal under our current law, right? There's no law that says you have to be nice to your competitors or your potential competitors. So maybe we change, change that. But if you want to do something about that, you have to create an entire new, entirely new antitrust understanding. What we have now is not sufficient to do it. And I think the problem you have, so if, for the left, you know, if they're concerned about misinformation or, or like the incentive the platforms have to just, you know, whip up the algorithm to turn everyone into a frenzy, to, you know, to, 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 to want to keep your eyeballs on the page by sending you crazier and crazier stuff. Well, if there's 25 companies, then why, what's, wouldn't each of them want to do that more than the other to, again, to, to, to keep you focused, to keep you alert? So, so the lack of competition they face in that way might actually clamp down on some of that activity. Um, I don't think 25 companies solves the political censorship issue because probably one company run by Mark Zuckerberg is going to have more favorable uh, speech policies or policies for alternative or conservative speech than, than if you broke up his company and each was staffed by one of his you know, undersecretaries for diversity and inclusion. Like Each of those people is, is more hostile, I can tell you, is more hostile to free speech than Mark Zuckerberg is. So, yeah, I, the, the kind of way it is now, it, it seems like it could get a lot worse if we, if we artificially tinkered with it. I'm fine with the market tinkering with it. 
if, if alternatives arise, that's one thing. Maybe they'll be better. Maybe they'll be worse. But we're talking about, you know, bringing in some kind of sweeping government, break them up into several companies. Probably the best argument you can make for the government doing something is that in the future, the government should not allow maybe additional large acquisitions or the, you know, the role that, that the FTC would, you know, the FTC approved the Facebook Instagram merger without like a second thought. It didn't even occur to anyone to work there to, 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 to fight that. You know, again, I'm a libertarian, so I'm kind of ideologically against the government telling them not to. But if I were going to steel man the case for doing so, I would say that is the most obvious. And that's, you know, part of the FTC's traditional oversight role. Probably stop, you know, if I don't know, if Google acquired Facebook, that you the best case you could make for the government doing something would be the government to stop that kind of merger, I would say. Given this weird both the agreement and disagreement, as we discussed, that everyone seems to hate big tech, but the conservatives say they're censoring too much, and people on the left are like they're not censoring enough and they can't ever agree on what the hell's going on. Is there do you think regulation is inevitable to some extent? Because there aren't many bipartisan agreements in this town. And so the regu- regulation of some sort is inevitable and in that, you know, maybe we should try to, you know, make it the least harmful or are they just going to sort of sit at odds with each other because they're disagreeing about the fundamental problem. And so we really won't see any massive change to the internet. So far, we haven't seen anything. Nothing has come on the regulatory front, despite, you know, all the, all the talk. So thus far, you know, Republicans crusading against big tech have basically been okay with just ranting about it, often on social media, hilariously. You know, Josh Hawley talking about how there's a Twitter, it's like if there was only one grocery store and like he's talking about Facebook, but he's on Twitter when he's making this analogy. Like that kind of level has been what we're experiencing so far. Or, and maybe Josh Hawley would actually, he's proposed actual regulations, haven't gone anywhere. Republican leadership has not been inclined to support this, even if the Democrats want to do it and some Republican members. I think the reform section 230 moment might be passing. I think it's possible that enough people like me or people who have the ear of some on the right have maybe persuaded them that, again, the immediate impact of your policy change would be the vast silencing you are concerned is happening right now. So it, the, the antitrust break up big tech seems to have become the preferred approach, um, but it hasn't gone anywhere so far. What we will see is without any additional, without any legislation being passed, we will see, you know, the kinds of people that the Biden administration has staffing the FTC and the FCC. Lena Khan, this new commissioner, very much has a, nope, we can use existing antitrust law to go after these companies. That is her view. You know, she will be able to, to, to make a lot of, to do a lot of stuff before it ever gets to the point of a, of a court case when she gets slapped down and said no. Um, the, 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 and I always say this to conservatives as well. The people who end up doing the regulating, the, bureauc- the bureaucrat who works in the FCC, the FTC, those people are ideologically the most progressive people you can find. They're government employees. They're government regulators. Even if what you want them to do is investigate and punish Facebook and Twitter for bias against conservatives, even if that's the explicit mission you give them, 
they will not do that. They will investigate these companies for anti-monopolistic or for monopolistic practices. They will be mad that you know Apple's default search engine is Google, and you have to like they're they're mad about that. They're they're worked up about that, even though that everyone who has an Apple device wants Google to be the default search engine. If you didn't auto preload Google onto Apple phones, everyone would be like, "How do I put Google on my phone?" Um, it, 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 like this is this is what customers want. The people have spoken in terms of their purchasing. They love these companies. They love Amazon. They love Apple products. Tech companies are more popular than Congress. They we the people like these things, and the politicians are saying, "My feelings were hurt. I want to destroy them." It's very it's very much a a a kind of like self created problem by the government to some extent. So I I think we will see. We will see like subliminal regulatory efforts <laughs> by uh, by by bureaucrats, by people in these agencies, without a lot of action on Congress's part. But that could do tremendous harm, and it, it will it will it will it will not be to the benefit of of anyone. It, it will not be to the benefit of conservatives who worry about censorship. It will not be to the benefit of people who just enjoy using social media. Um, it, it's something. It's something that's very much a part of this, like moral, unique moral panic. I mean, not unique, because moral panics are never unique, but it, 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 palpable moral panic we're living through, and that we're just hearing about constantly, that everyone is so exercised about. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.